Welcome to OncoPharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice, and I am sweltering here in my office in Mountain Home, Tennessee, the home of the supporting sponsor of OncoPharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. Thank you for uh, listening today. A uh, little bit of an, maybe an odd topic, but I want to talk about Netflix. And this Netflix show, in conjunction with uh, Dr. Lisa Sanders, who writes for the New York Times, uh, the show is called Diagnosis, and Season 1, Episode 7, is about a patient on a brute nip. And I kind of want to run through this, uh, because uh, it'll come back uh, at the end, but I think it's interesting. Um, and if you're like me, one of your favorite things is Netflix and chill. And when I say chill, I mean like fall asleep and wake up to the screen that's asking, are you still watching this? No, I'm asleep. Um, so uh, the, here's the story, and you can um, there's a, an article, and I'll link to this article uh, on Twitter uh, that Dr. Sanders wrote in the New York Times, uh, October 26th of 2018, so a little over a year ago. And essentially what she's doing is crowdsourcing for complicated cases to figure out the diagnosis, and that ends up being the title of this series of columns, I believe, as well as the Netflix show. Um, so this is a, a patient... Um, you know, an older to middle-aged guy who uh, d- eventually develops paralysis and can't walk. And so one of the leading theories that she has is that it could be his abrutinib. So he had uh, or has Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia and uh, had been on abrutinib for four and a half years. And at some point during that four and a half years, he started to develop some peripheral neuropathy, so numbness or paresthesias in his fingers and toes. Uh, that progressed uh, with worsening um, you know, neuropathy to the point that you know, he could not move his fingers and toes, could not move out of bed, and became incontinent. And this is all described uh, both in the article as well as in the Netflix uh, show. So you, can, you know, can see him and video of him describing this. So one of the, you know, one of the leading theories is, uh, is a brute dip caused this. So that's certainly within our realm to talk about on, on this podcast. So I wanted to kind of to walk through uh, this particular case and bring it kind of full circle on, on something else. So he started to have this uh, you know, paralysis, uh, that this progressive neuropathy that led to paralysis. And at some point in his care, uh, and he'd been on uh, Ibrutinib for four and a half years for Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia. So let me take a step back. So if you're unfamiliar, Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia is a, a slow-growing or indolent B-cell cancer um, that, uh, that shoots out IgM. Okay. So, and that IgM can lead to hyperviscosity, which by itself, and, and some people suggest even a quarter of patients lead to peripheral neuropathy at baseline or at diagnosis. He didn't have that. It came on later. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And if you're kind of unfamiliar with Waldenstrom's, uh, if you look, uh, at, for example, in the NCCN guidelines, it's in the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma section. If you drew a Venn diagram and had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma overlap with multipyeloma, that overlap is what I, is kind of how I think of Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia because you do have an increase in IgM, but it's a it's a B cell, not a plasma cell, so that's that's how I think about it. Um, so anyway, so the guy uh, is on Waldenstrom's for or is on a brutinib for his Waldenstrom's disease is is well controlled on a brutinib. Uh, however, he has this progressive neuropathy, but he's still taking a brutinib until he has, a, a, you know, what sounds like, what, well, it was a life-threatening pulmonary embolism. And at that point, stopped the brutinib and then stayed off of it, uh, is, is my recollection from, uh, from the episode. And then several months later, uh, it seems like, I don't exactly know the time frame, but he, he starts to be able to move his toes. 
still can't feel anything, but can move his toes. So he has some uh, some motor function restored. And then he starts to feel a pins and needles feeling. And he had lost all feeling before. So things are starting maybe to improve from his neuropathy standpoint. And then improvement happens while off a brutinib. And for some example, for some or for some reason, the drug caused nerve damage. Nerve damage doesn't reverse quickly. You know, nerves take a, a so a long time to regrow, repair themselves. That's one of the reasons nerves are generally resistant to the effects of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy does not kill uh, nerve cells. Some chemotherapy agents can damage them, but they do not kill nerve cells because it's not rapidly growing, which is what cytotoxic chemo kills. Um, so this now kind of falls in us, you know, maybe in the, in the oncology and oncology pharmacy community, does a brutinib cause this? Or maybe the best question is, could it cause a brutinib in, in this patient? And that's essentially the question that is uh, this, this idea of crowdsourcing. And we'll talk about crowdsourcing, is that a good idea for medical advice, kind of at the end. So there are a couple things to, to keep in mind. Um, one is... Brutinib was, he was taking a Brutinib for four and a half years. That's a long period of time. And if we go to the Wallenstrom's data, uh, one of the first big publications for Brutinib for Wallenstrom's was in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. 63 patients on that study. Uh, we have 30-month data report in that study. So as far as what's reported in the literature, we don't have a lot of patients on a Brutinib for that long, for four and a half years. Two and a half years, that's 30 months, and only 63. So if there was a 1 in 100 side effect that happened after four years of treatment, not enough patients to, to really evaluate that in the literature. There is a, a brutinib and rituximab for Waldenstrom's publication in NEJM in 2018. That's 150 patients, and they go for 30 months or, or three years um, as well on that study. So they have 30 months is what's reported, but they actually have some patient data out to, to three years at 36 months. So again, uh, a 1 in 200 uh, side effect we would not see. So this becomes a very big question in, in oncology as we pump out more and more new drugs, as drugs are approved based on studies with ENDS that are in the double digits based on, you know, ertafitinib and fedratinib studied in patients, you know, in the 50s, 60s, or the 100s that one in a hundred side effect may not be seen for a while, let alone if that drug is taken for an extended period of time. The long-term toxicity is unknown, uh, and some of these rare toxicities, one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in a million toxicities, you know, we, we're not gonna know about for oncology drugs uh, as they come out. And this is, is really the field of pharmacovigilance, and this is where I would like to rally the listeners of Oncopharm to pay attention to these these strange things that happen. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily uh, our job to, as uh, alluding to the title, to get the diagnosis, as in, uh, as in the show, but it's our job to describe what happens to patients, I think. So if a patient has a weird adverse or suspected adverse drug reaction with a brutinib, we should try and write it up and publish it so that everyone else can learn from that. So this is this is now the time where I make the case for case reports. So before we we uh, identified the virus, the human immunodeficiency virus that caused AIDS, before, before that happened, you can go back in the literature and find case reports of of men in New York City and San Francisco and patients who were hemophilia who had hemophilia and received blood transfusions who have these weird infections and have PCP. So you started to see these case reports before anything was ever uh, found and diagnosed and before we had treatment. So really the birth of any advance 
in clinical uh, in clinical practice oftentimes are case reports. This is especially true, in my opinion, for new drugs that are used for that are not used commonly for rare diseases like Waldstrom's uh, that are approved based on small sample sizes. We just don't know what's going to happen in the real population. Um, so coming back to brutinib, peripheral neuropathy is listed in, in the PI as something that has happened to patients. Was it severe enough to cause paralysis? Probably not, or else that would probably be in the PI. Um, so the, could a brutinib have caused this? Maybe. Now, let's say you were involved in the care of this patient and you want to write a case report. Well, it probably would be hard to get published since it's already been on Netflix. But if you were... There are some best practices in writing case reports for adverse drug reactions. There are guidelines that you can find. You can just Google guidelines for case reports in medicine. You can find those. The second thing, and this is something that's not really done explicitly uh, in, in the article, is what's called the Naranjo score. So that's um, uh, by Naranjo and colleagues, published in 81 in, uh, in Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics, title being a method for estimating the probability of an advert of adverse drug reaction it's simple 10 questions i'm just going to go through these and we're going to get a number from 1 to 10 and that can tell us is this possible likely or definitely an adverse drug reaction so one are there previous conclusive reports of this reaction maybe that's a no um or maybe it's a one because we do see some reports in the pi of peripheral neuropathy. So we could give that maybe a zero or one. You get one point if the answer is yes to that question. Now this is where the Naranjo score and scale uh, is a little unfair to new drugs because it's the first time the side effect's been reported or the adverse drug event's been reported. There's not going to be conclusive reports, right? It's the first case potentially. Did the event appear after the drug was administered? Yes, that's worth two points. Uh, Did the adverse reaction improve when the drug was discontinued? Well, yeah, it, it, after the drug was stopped, some period later it did improve, so that's another point. Uh, did the reaction reappear when the drug was readministered? Hasn't happened yet, don't know. Uh, are there alternative causes other than the drug that could have their own reaction? Um, that's a minus one, because Waldstrom's could do this, um, although it seems to that seems to be a, um, a problem, Waldstrom's induced neuropathy, when the disease... Uh, is very active, and his started when his disease was was not controlled. So you might call that minus one or zero, depending. Uh, did the reaction reappear when placebo was given? Don't know. Uh, was the drug detected in the blood in really high concentrations? Don't know. Was the reaction more severe when the dose was increased or less severe when the dose was decreased? Don't know. Did the patient have a similar reaction to a similar drug class? Don't know. Uh, was the adverse event confirmed by objective evidence? Yes, that's worth one point. We know he was paralyzed. You could say, well, maybe he was faking the peripheral neuropathy. Well, there were nerve conduction studies done, so we know that. So you get a, a score of anywhere from three to five, depending on some of those kind of uh, gray areas. So we'll say, you know, we give that a four. Well, a score of one to four are possible. Uh, if you had a score less than one, that would be doubtful. Five to eight is considered probable, and nine to ten is considered definitely. So you would have to do a Naranjo score in a case report. You'd have a Naranjo score of four for this. It might be hard to get a case report published saying possible adverse drug reaction. But again, uh, there is some bias against a a brand new side effect or adverse drug event reported because there cannot possibly have been previous conclusive reports. If, for example, we don't know this, but if a brutinib does cause paralysis and progressive neuropathy leading to paralysis in patients, say one in a thousand times who've been on it for four more years. We probably don't have 
thousands of patients who have been on it for that long, so we would not possibly know if a one in thousand side effect uh, could happen. Um, so hopefully, uh, you know, this this patient's case will uh, continue to improve. He'll be able to 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 walk and uh, eventually, and and maybe we'll have some more clarity on that. Uh, perhaps the Waldenstroms will. Uh, require him to restart a brutinib, although his physician in, in the Netflix episode kind of suggests we're not going to try a brutinib again. Uh, sort of thinking the drug could be doing this, and uh, in my opinion, that's probably uh, that's probably wise. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing trying to crowdsource what the diagnosis is, but at the end of the day, that's kind of what a, a case report is, is you're just describing this strange thing that happened, and maybe it's explainable, and you have you can nail down this drug did do that, but I think it's equally compelling if you can explain it and you just report the series of events in a very clear way so other readers of that case report down the road can come across that. And I'll give you an, an example. We had a patient a while ago with profound thrombocytopenia immediately after starting um, um, a, series of a series of antimicrobials. And based on reviewing some of these case reports that I was able to find pretty quickly with some drug information skills I learned in residency, was able to pinpoint Bactrim as the most likely cause because the way the thrombocytopenia was described in these other two or three case reports with Bactrim was exactly the same as with this patient. And it was treated with steroids the same way as with these other case reports. Platelets responded, no more Bactrim, platelets are still good. So. Uh, those case reports were very useful in the management of that patient. So it was helpful uh, to me as, as an oncology pharmacist, as well as the infectious disease pharmacist and uh, the oncologist and infectious disease physician to have those case reports to rely upon. So that's my case for case reports. If you see something, write something and publish it. Um, another t uh, piece of advice, s uh, same concept, but kind of a different type of reaction, but drug interactions. We don't always have the full drug interaction profile when a new drug is published. So if you see or suspect a drug interaction, write that up again. However, instead of using a Naranjo scale to rate the probability, you're going to use the DIPS, D-I-P-S, the Drug Interaction Probability Scale. Um, some other advice, if you are going to write a case report, whether it's an adverse drug reaction or a drug-drug interaction, uh, work with a, a, a physician colleague. A physician will be great at describing uh, everything going on with the patient and uh, and kind of describing all the other uh, you know medical conditions that may or may not have been a confounding factor in in whatever was going on. And again, use those guidelines. And if in a pinch you need some help or you want to know is this something that is worth publishing, you know where to find me. Uh, you can find my email online. You can follow me at Farm Deetnib. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. Uh, find me on Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Um, and while you're doing that, you could just find us in the iTunes Store, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, Google Good Music. Uh, rate, review us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Tell us what you would like to hear more about in the future or what, uh, or just send me a personal message with uh, an episode suggestion. Thank you for listening. And remember, doses matter. Thank you.